Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to the Games Master Academy. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke No Trouble Owen. And Goofy's a dog, Mickey's a mouse, and I'm Ash Versus. <laughs> this episode aired on the 21st of October 1993. Take that and Lulu are still top of the pops, but there's a new number one at the box office as Quentin Tarantino pens True Romance. From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Hello, baby! Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. <laughs> a con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? No car, tell him we gotta go. A call girl. You cough all day? Huh? Ah! I'm out of that. She a four alarm fire or what? She seems very nice. What are you doing in LA anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Now, all that stands between them and their wildest dreams. Find out who this winging a prayer artist is and take him off at the neck. Are 60 cops. 40 agents. He's a wild man, this kid Clarence. I like him. 30 mobsters. I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And a few thousand bullets. We're all going to die here. These are cops. Now, normally when we're talking about the films, we might have seen them before. We might not have seen them before. We'll usually watch a trailer, browse the IMDb, Wikipedia, whatever, and form an opinion. Mm. There was a couple of bits of this movie that I wanted to make sure I'd remembered in my head. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled it up. It's on Netflix. And that's how I watched the entire movie accidentally. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had forgotten... A, what a cast this movie has, because holy sh**, this has names. And also, this is young Tarantino's script. Every line, Mm. regardless of taste, 
is crackling. It's just like there's an energy to it. And there's a lot of times in this film when various actors on screen are laughing. And a lot of the time, Mm. I can't tell if it's a deliberate bit of direction or they're laughing at the lines they're having to give. Like in The Usual Suspects in the lineup where everyone breaks. It kind of feels like that, like they're corpsing. And the laughter feels genuine. It is a movie that is very, very early 90s, and there is some repeated use of slurs in it that really make you wince. Those slurs are being used by kind of bad characters, I guess, which is where Tarantino's coming from. The good guys don't tend to use them. The Mm. bad guys do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Kevin Smith uh, used to make that argument about chasing Amy. Um, like I remember uh, it was the, the evening with Kevin Smith, the first one, if he really believes that all a lesbian needs is a good deep dicking and that will sort of round. But Kevin Smith's like, no, 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 That's said by the idiot character. That's a character who is very much wrong and you as an audience should recognise that he's very wrong because he's an idiot. I think it's a real issue when you get a writer or director like Kevin Smith, like Quentin Tarantino, who in addition to writing scripts are also very vocal presences, is because they Mm. have a voice outside of what you watch on screen, be it blog posts, radio shows, podcasts, in the case of Kevin Smith, a stage show. Mm. People start to attribute those words directly to the person writing them rather than going those are just the words of a character that this person wrote. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite funny, really, that Kevin Smith's big character, or big characters, were two stoners that he was writing in a period of time when he himself was not a stoner. It's only really, like, in the last 10-plus years that Kevin Smith has become the characters that he was writing in the 90s. But everyone just assumed that he was. Everyone just assumed that he was Silent Bob in real life. I mean, I've got a lot to thank him for in that regard, because here I am, a guy with a beard and long hair, and I like wearing overcoats in winter. I'm probably the only man in the world that goes to Camden, and people don't try and sell me drugs, they try and buy them off me, because they're like, that (laughs) looks like Silent Bob. It's why I don't wear baseball caps, because then the image would be complete. I'm also really glad Kevin Smith lost so much weight, because one, he's alive, And two, it means Mm -hmm. I can still costume as Silent Bob because I lost weight, so it it works. (laughs) But I talked about the cast on this film, so let's go down the names. The leads are Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette, who have an amazing chemistry on the screen together. But then the rest of the cast, James Gandolfini, Dennis Hopper, Michael Rappaport, Bronson Pinchot, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, and the Walken man, Christopher Walken, where else do you get a cast like that? And it, 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 although it's not a Tarantino-directed movie, you wouldn't be surprised if you saw that cast list on a Tarantino-directed movie because like, one of the things that Tarantino likes to do, and, you know, like Jackie Brown and, and the Kill Bill movies and pretty much everything he's done post-Pulp Fiction has been, look at all of these names that are in this movie. Going back to True Romance, the plot involves an ex-call girl, played by Patricia Arquette, and her newly obtained former client, now husband, played by Christian Slater, who are on the run from the Mafia after stealing an inordinate amount of cocaine. It's also worth saying that Christian Slater's character, at least, is spoken to by the ghost of Elvis. Yes. Now, Tarantino wrote this script before Reservoir Dogs came out. And so when Dogs came out and he became the hot shit on the griddle. His scripts that he'd already written suddenly became desirable, even if he wasn't going to direct them. And this movie came out fairly soon after Reservoir Dogs. Mm, Yeah. 
And Slater's character is obsessed with martial arts movie. He works in a comic store, a comic store called Heroes for Sale, which was also the name of my local comic store as a teenager in Cheltenham, which would have been after this movie came out. And I would not put it past the owner to have named his business after this film. But yeah, 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 yeah. obsessed with martial arts, worked at a comic store, obsessed with Elvis, really kind of awkward around women. It will come to no surprise to anyone that Tarantino considers this one of his most autobiographical films. Yeah, the only difference is that Tarantino worked in a video store, not a comic book store. But everything else is basically the same. Probably also didn't steal a massive amount of cocaine from the mafia. Yeah, maybe. As as far as we know, anyway. And his dad probably wasn't Dennis Hopper. Again, as far as we know. We'd have heard about it, because you know what? If your dad was Dennis Hopper, you'd tell people. King Cooper himself. King Cooper or Lefty from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. In this film, he plays yeah. an ex-cop, and because I only recently watched Massacre 2 as part of Shocktober, my brain went, he was a sheriff in that, he's an ex-cop here, that checks out. Yeah. They did make some changes to his script before they filmed it. It was originally very non-linear. They, they kind of simplified it a bit. I think it does benefit from that. But the biggest change they made is they changed the ending. And essentially... He gave it a happy ending where the two leads survive, mostly intact, and move to Mexico and have a kid, which they call Elvis. Even though I've just given away the ending, if you've got Netflix and you've got two hours to spare and you're not easily offended, check this movie out because you've got a great script. You've got an amazing cast of all the films I've accidentally ended up watching as a result of doing this podcast. This is probably my favourite. Like every teenager, I went through my Quentin Tarantino phase where like, he's the, you know, the, the coolest director you've ever seen. Have you ever seen Pulp Fiction? Man, it's the coolest film you've ever seen. It's got this scene. like They talk about burgers and stuff. So like, like every teenager, I went through that phase and that was when I saw True Romance. But I've not actually seen it since that period of time, which means I haven't seen it since. I was 15, 16 years old. So it's probably been a good 20 years since I've seen True Romance, I may need to give it another try. Like, not another try, because I remember very much enjoying it, but I do need to give it another... I, I do need to give it another watch. What surprised me today was how much I still liked it, even if a couple of scenes are really uncomfortable purely because of some of the language used, but the characters using it are bad characters, so your mileage may vary on that. Uh, last thing yeah. of note is it's still considered today one of Tony Scott's best directed films like it's still held up as a high point of his work unfortunately as good as the film is like a lot of indie films of the time while a critical success it didn't set the box office on fire it basically made back its budget at a domestic level so 12 and a half million dollar budget roughly 12 and a half million dollars at the box office but like a lot of those indie films it did develop a cult following over the years However, when I was looking at the reviews, there was a quote from Pete Travers of Rolling Stone, who gave it three stars, which for Rolling Stone isn't that bad, because, you know, they can be arseholes about films. He says it's Tarantino's gutter poetry that detonates true romance. And that is the best description for this kind of script writing from Tarantino. It flows like poetry, but from the gutter. Do you know what? I've never heard that quote before, but it is so spot on for what a Tarantino movie is because like I remember like there was always this argument and this this argument happened a lot when I was at university as well where people say they're like Kevin Smith and Tarantino write a naturalistic dialogue which because like that's what you're like oh man because this is what everyone sounds like 
but it's actually when you you sort of look at them on a more sort of analytical level it's like oh no one no real human talks like this because what they're writing is poetry so yes yeah, so i think that's actually a really good way to put it it's it's gutter poetry that's that's really beautiful actually i really like that although you say no one talks like that but i do wonder as being part of the generation z depending on how you view our age gap that grew up with tarantino and smith and our speech patterns and our cadence has probably been influenced by their work. Mm, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Perhaps Kevin Smith's argument about it was that a writer writes the world that they want to live in. And in Kevin Smith's world, everyone just sits around and talks about comic books. And in Tarantino's world, everyone has seen all the movies that he's seen and likes the movies that he likes. And feet. Yeah, and well, yes, and of course, feet. Um, the only other thing I was going to mention about um, True Romance is while I've not seen it in quite some time, uh, a very good friend of mine uh, is a massive fan of this movie, so much that they named their daughter Alabama after Patricia Arquette's character. Nice. Yeah. It, it was a great name for a character as well because it shortens down to Bama, which is actually a really nice, like, kind of little nickname. And that's what they do as well, shorten it down to Bama. Oh. Uh, we've got no big releases this week, so what's going on in the magazines? It's new issue time, Luke. We've still got the stickers on the front of this one. Oh, they're good stickers as well. Look at that stick! Look at that st- sticker you've got there of Dexter Fletcher, like his little headshot pose. That's great. That is Rachel Diaries slash press gang era, and like that. That's that's just his basically headshot. That is not. Yeah. That there's no scruff or stubble. No, it, it's not a promo shot for Games Master. That's just taken off his CV. In fact, that might be the leather jacket that Spike wears in Press Gang. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. But this is a new issue with lots of new news, lots of reviews, including reviews of Lethal Enforcers and Total Carnage. There's a chance to win a surround system worth over £1,000. And coming up in a few episodes' time, we've got an interview, or rather, the magazine has an interview with Dexter Fletcher that we will be deep diving into when we don't have a new movie or a new song to to cover. Give it give it the time yeah. it needs to breathe. We will eventually get to that Fireworks Factory. We've been teasing that for quite a while now, and we, we will eventually get to it. Is Fireworks Factory a thing for us now? It feels like it's become a thing. When are they going to get to the Fletcher Factory? <laughs> Uh, the other thing as well is because you're holding up that magazine to the webcam, I do get to see there's a big poster on the back for Jurassic Park, and that's great. It was on the cover last month, now it's on the back cover. God, that artwork. I love that artwork so much. Just the black trees, the the redness coming down, that big old logo. Oh, that hits me right in the nostalgia, man. Inside the magazine, when we get to the network section, we have a goodbye from Jim Douglas. Oh yeah, he's off, isn't he? He's moving on to Pastures New. He's moving on to a top-level special project, What Future Is Doing, and says that current deputy editor Andy Lowe is stepping into the big leather chair, and Tim Tucker is joining as deputy editor, moving over from their sister magazine, Sega Zone. So that's the end of Jim Douglas in Games Master magazine. And we only got a handful of appearances of, it, of him on the show as well. I find it interesting he leaves shortly after Dom. I know there's another project going on, but it does kind of feel a bit... Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, there's news that Nintendo is cutting cartridge costs only by a few quid. Oh, well, Andy Crane will at least be very happy about that. He won't remember it now. <laughs> Why do console cartridges cost up to £65? But meanwhile, from the sexy locale of Slough where it's a rainy afternoon, 
Jim and a couple of geezers from the sister magazine Total and Edge are sitting in a dingy room on the first floor of a red brick unit in a business park. They're there for the first experience of Atari's new 64-bit machine, the Jaguar. Do you know what? If there's a place in this country that sums up the Jaguar perfectly, it's Slough. I'm a Reading boy, so I know how Slough can be. It's not in new shiny London. It's in the old slough. I think it was you, but I had to go there for something day job related. I had to go to a data center there, basically, where all the servers sit. And I think we were exchanging messages and I said, oh, I'm on my way to Slough. And you said, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'd not been to Slough at that point before. I've always said about Slough, it's the one place in this country where they've got a dead dog at the actual station itself. Because they've got like um, taxidermy. There's a taxidermy dog. There. And I'm like, it's a, it's the only place in the world where a dead dog is at the station. I mean, it's the only place in the world where a dead dog is meant to be at the station. <laughs> yeah. They say they're going to wrestle with the spectacularly unergonomic control pad. Hmm. Starting off strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, like, they're not wrong, are they? Because it is a bad pad. It's a good idea, badly executed, which I think sums up the Jaguar pretty nicely. But they're yeah. there to examine a batch of titles in development. And they say that although their exposure to each game was brief and each is far from finished, the quality of this first generation of Jaguar software could safely be described as patchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Best looking was Aliens vs. Predator, a 3D texture mapped maze in the Wolfenstein style. Crescent Galaxy is the obligatory horizontal scrolling space blast featuring the completely unstarfoxy animal characters of you best be sitting down for this, Trevor McFur, <coughs> who is a leopard, a cat mm. called Cutter, and General Patent, who looks inexcusably and hilariously like a picture of a lion scanned out of National Geographic stuck on the body of an American general. I mean, those names are like, they're not even trying to not be Star Fox-esque, are they? Who calls their hero Trevor? Unless you're making Grand Theft Auto V. Fox McCloud is a cool name. Trevor is not. Trevor McFur. Oh, God. <laughs> they also mentioned Tempest 2000 as a competent reworking of the prehistoric wireframe blaster enhanced and brought up to date with agonizingly STE sampled sound. Ow. It's got a banging soundtrack, that game. Banging soundtrack. I disagree with them on that. I mean, even if mm. it does sound like an Atari ST, that's no bad thing. It sounds great. A driving game temporarily known as Virtual Racing is also underway, displaying the Jaguar's impressive polygonal processing power. And finally, there's Cybermorph, a sort of Zark meets Hunter affair. Where did you learn to fly? And they've got a picture of the Jaguar with the caption that says, Ruddy Jesus, it's that new Phoenix thing and it'll sell loads. <laughs> no and no. Yeah, we said a lot about the Jaguar on last week's episode when we had the feature on it and... It's not good. I hate that pad. Cybermorph's not a good game. Where did you learn to fly? They're right, though. AVP is probably the best-looking game of the bunch. Um, and Tempest 2000 is definitely the most fun game to play. All of which had later iterations that were just as fun and on better consoles or platforms. Completely. And lastly for this week, we've got a brief news article that basically says Dominic Diamond lost a tournament against 12 kids on Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Oh, mate, the slam on Dom, he's not here anymore. In round one, one of the six beat him, but in the second, four of them soundly kicked his butt. Given how much Dom was into games and very much into this show as well, 
I really would have loved to have seen that Mortal Kombat episode we had to kick off series one with Dominic Diamond as the host. What it could have been, like the, the passion that he would have had for it. He'd have been hitting on Sonya Blade. We know he'd have been hitting on <laughs> Sonya Blade. But apparently the cultish TV and radio celeb came up with a classic pathetic excuse on his defeat saying, I'm not as well practiced as some of the young people we've seen here today. Sure, right Dom. They're really being bitchy about him. I'm not sure I approve of this. Maybe that's why Jim's leaving. Maybe he doesn't like the anti-Dom tone that the magazine has taken. They do say to please take note of Dom's new Don Johnson designer stubble look and the watch he's wearing, which is apparently a fake Rolex. They're going at him from every angle, quite uncalled for. One of our contestants will trek deep into the jungle in amongst some incredible Disney animation. But you'll have to wait until tonight's final to see that. In the meantime, let's go straight over to the Games Master for the first challenge. And like last week's episode, we have got two contenders in the first round leading to one person going into the final. We teased this up last week, but this is another opportunity where we may have zero winners on this show. Spoilers, we don't really get any winners on this show. It, it's kind of, I was really enjoying the multi-person start and then leading into sort of like a one-on-one -on -one thing at the end. Sometimes this does feel like almost classic Games Master, but I almost feel like Series 3 had moved on from that in a way. Do you remember like, you know, Dexter Fletcher opened up Series 3 saying like, we've torn out the rule book, we've completely changed it. But like this challenge to kick us off and the final challenge we get, just they feel like Series 2 Games Master. I mean, they're still going with the semi-final into a final it's just more interesting when it starts with four and ends with two or starts with eight and ends with four. The multiplayer aspect is more interesting, but I am wondering if it's a case of sometimes we don't have enough multiplayer games to make this work and we don't just want to go for multiple time trials. Because there's, there's only so much fun you can have watching someone play the first level of Mr. Nuts over and over again. I've had more than enough fun. With, with, with that particular title. In fact, some would say I've had my fill of Mr. Nuts. But it is time for our first challenge. Let's head on over to Games Master, find out what it is we're playing. My first game tonight is a bit of an oddball, Cosmic Spacehead on the Mega Drive. Our two challengers must beat each other into submission with nothing more than a supply of custard pies. Nothing like the delicious flan that our own dear Marisha cooks up, I'm sure. Power-ups appear from time to time to boost your abilities, but otherwise, it's a very simple one-to-one -one bout of slapstick action. So, get spinning. Oh, never mind nuts, we've got a cosmic space head. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to see this game on the show. Yeah, this is Cosmic Spacehead. We've got two challenges. We're going to beat each other into submission using custard pies that are not as good as the flans that Auntie Marisha makes. So it's a 16-bit bake-off, essentially. Oh, mate, a, Brit a great British bake-off game. I mean, it's basically cooking mama or overcooked, but I would definitely play a great British bake-off game. You'd be penalised if you had a soggy bottom. You know that. Exactly, yeah. You'll get your timings right and everything. Oh, I need to, someone needs to get onto that. It's amazing that it's not happened yet. Actually, I mean, it'll be a mobile game, let's be honest. It'll be a mobile game where you get to do the first round and then you've got to pay to do the others. It's almost like you're in tune with the cynical nature of games developers <laughs> nowadays, Luke. I got burned by Simpsons Tapped Out. But this is a weird choice of game because the game that we see is not Cosmic Spacehead. Is it not? Because this game was originally released for the NES as Linus Spacehead's Cosmic Crusade. It was mm -hmm. then ported up 
to Amiga, MS-DOS, Game Gear, Master System, and the Mega Drive as Cosmic Spacehead. It features adventure elements with locations that are connected by platform sections. It is an adventure game at its heart. It has more in common with Maniac Mansion or Day of the Tentacle than your average platformer or top-down shooter. The player's commands Mm. are directed by use of a cursor as well as written commands on the home computer markets. What we're seeing here is a bonus game within the game. Right, okay. And this this mini-game, this two-player mode that is called Pie Slap, is basically kind of an upgrade of an Atari 2600 game called Armour Ambush. It's not even particularly original, and it does just strike me as a really weird choice, and also makes me think of what I was saying earlier about them struggling to find decent two-player games that aren't just fighting games. Yeah. Because unless your players know all the secret moves, as we've experienced, those fighting games can get a bit dull. They can drag. Actually, I mean, I'm not saying that. This this, this fucking challenge drags. We will get to that shortly. <laughs> yeah. So the game's Cosmic Spacehead. Let's welcome our first two contestants. We've got Liam Raven from Liverpool and Mamoru Nomoto from Japan. <laughs> so Liam, the game's Cosmic Spacehead. Have you seen it before? Played it before, yeah. You're a bit of a Cosmic Spacehead yourself. Fairly good at it, yeah. You're fairly good at it? Yeah. Are you good at it? No trouble. No trouble. You're going to win? No trouble. You're not scared of him? No trouble. Okay, well, <laughs> looks like our two contestants are ready. If you want to take your places on the hot seats. So this is very, very interesting because we've got Liam from Liverpool in one corner and in the other corner, we've got Mamoru Naruto from Japan. Now, we have a number of overseas competitors across the three seasons of Games Master. This is the first Japanese competitor we've had, and oh dear, they appear to be going a racial stereotype route with this because he only knows, Bucky O'Hare is, two words of English at this point, and those words are... No problem. Now, I thought that as well. I was very surprised when he comes in to like do the final challenge and he's got a lot more to say. I'm like, I thought the, the, the joke Bucky O'Hare is is that he only says no problem. When I made my first pass notes, which unusually for this episode was the first time I'd watched it, my initial note for him being introduced and starting on the no problem shtick was, oh, fuck, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But as we go through the episode and he reappears at the end, there is actually a payoff where Dex becomes the butt of the joke. And I'm like, okay, you are playing a long game, I think, I hope. I hope you're playing a long game. With me in the commentary box this week is Jerry Doak of Mega Drive Advanced Gaming. Hi, Dexter. How you doing? All right. Hi, so, Cosmic Spacehead sounds like a bit of a weirdo game. No, very simple. Basically, shoot each other and that's it. You've got uh, Mamaru in the top right-hand corner yeah. and Liam in the bottom left. All they have to do is sneak about, fire a few shots, waste each other. So, Liam is the blue character, Mamaru is the yellow character. And the way that the scoring system works is very much like Micro Machines that we had last week, is you've got 10 dots and you've got to get to 10, and that is how you win the game. If you score one, then you go 6-4, 7-3, etc. And I talked about this with Micro Machines last week. If you're really, really good at Micro Machines on two-player mode, you can just go around the track again and again and again and again and again and again and again because it is this whole point scoring thing. And that's what happens here, because this challenge, I think... This is the longest challenge in Games Master we've had so far. Surely it must be. It feels like it goes on for eight or so minutes. It doesn't go on quite that long. It's certainly lengthy. And it's a long challenge 
not because the two of them are bad, nope. but because they're smart, they are applying tactics and strategy to this game, which doesn't happen often on Games Master. They are essentially trying to snipe each other with flans. They're using a cover-based tactic where they're hiding around corners, and as they get power-ups, they're using those to their advantage. At one point, Mamoru gets the bouncing shots, and at that point, one, Doji Curry, two, the game changes because he doesn't even need to be looking at his opponent to hit him. He can bounce pies around the arena, working off angles to hit them from behind. Yeah, that's how he gets the, the basically the final win of the game. It doesn't really come across that they're doing this tactical cover-based fighting because when you get hit, you're, you get a sort of very brief pause of invincibility before you can just get shot again. So you can actually, if you can chase after someone, you can just batter them quite quickly and get your points. So it actually just feels like the neither man wants to make the first move. So there's so much of this challenge that is static and they're not moving and they are just waiting for the other one to make a move. And Jerry of Mega Drive Advanced Gaming gets so mad during all of this because he keeps yelling, it's not that sort of game. It's covering a bit. It wants to really go for it. There's no point in hiding in a game like this. Just go out there and throw the pies at each other. Stop messing around. I disagree with Jerry because saying it's not that type of game just means that he doesn't play it like that. If you want to apply strategy and tactics to a game like this, there is nothing in the game that stops you doing it. It's perhaps not best suited for a television show. I think with the right sell on commentary, this could have actually been a more exciting challenge because they could have gone, ah, they're playing cat and mouse, they're doing this, they're doing that. But no, Jerry kind of buries them. And as a result, it doesn't do the challenge any favour. He's saying this should be a shooting match. They're playing chess. And chess, in the most part, is not a quick game. No, no, no. As I well know, I've played a lot of chess as of late. Um, I actually played it in the park the other day with my brother. And it took us ages to finish a game because we were both agonisingly choosing over what move we were going to do next. I, I'm, I'm kind of siding with Jerry a little bit on this one here. Because I, I mean, I found this this challenge to be uh, to be quite boring because it was just these two lads just sort of sitting around waiting for the other to to make a move. And at the end of the day, it's cosmic spacehead. It's throwing pies. Like I think what they were expecting this to be is quite rapid pace because it is just you get that very brief pause of invincibility. So you just charge at each other almost Bomberman style, I guess. And because the game doesn't look particularly great, and then it's just, it's a bit slow. It's just a bit sort of like, ah, throw the pie, go back into the cover. I don't think this is particularly fun. I, I, I did not enjoy this challenge personally. The challenge as presented was not particularly enjoyable. I stand by the statement that with the right commentary, they could have sold this as much more than it was. They could have also edited it better. We've got the Zapruder film of Games Master that shows that they have cut entire rounds out of yep. fighting game challenges. But for this one, for some reason, they didn't. And I wonder if it's almost because of Jerry's commentary, you have to present it that way, because all of his commentary is they're standing around doing nothing. And so now you've got to try and cut around that. Also, I think the final challenge runs, well, it feels like it runs quite short, that final challenge. It's quite rapid pace. 
So maybe they just needed some time to fill. So they just show this challenge almost in all of its glory. Definitely with you on the commentary. So basically, it's Jerry's fault. Even though I think he's sort of right. I sort of agree with Jerry a bit. No, no, no. Jerry's wrong. But this also comes from the fact that I, you know, this I'm not this sort of game player. I did not get on playing Counter-Strike when I was a teenager because there's too much arsing around and waiting. I'm a Doom player. I'm an uh, an Unreal Tournament player, which is just get in there and f*** up as many people as you possibly can. You get f***ed up, bang, respawn, just go back in there and just f*** some more people up. I am not a stand around and wait kind of guy. I get, I've not got the patience for it. And yet you play chess. Yeah, but, you know, it's good to hang out with my brother, I suppose. Yeah, fair enough. So, Liam, he had you running about all over the place there, backing away into the corners, went wrong. He's fodding us all, let him win, bit of generosity. Oh, that's very generous of you, very nice. <laughs> you pleased with that victory? No trouble. It was easy, was it? No trouble. Yeah, so are uh, you going to come back for the final? No trouble. <laughs> well, that's good news. And post-match, Mamaru says, no trouble. A lot. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for the reviews. No trouble. The Imperial Army's hell-bent on overtaking the moon and only you can stop them in Gunstar Hero. A one or two player shoot them up over four different levels, pick up the bonus icons and gun down the enemy. One of my all-time favourite games is Midnight Resistance, but now it's been superseded by Gunstar Heroes. It really is a great blast. It's got tremendous bosses, plenty to shoot. The graphics are absolutely top-notch and the gameplay is varied. It's got a lot in it and really kept me challenged. Some really nice touches thrown in there. For instance, if you're just standing on a hill, you'll start to slide down it. And the explosions are really spectacular. Well worthy of bet placing your collection. Got a packed house in the reviews. And again, Steve Merritt from Megatech, Jazz Rignall from Mean Machine Sega, Brad Burton from Over the Edge, Jeremy Daltrey, Games Expert, Frank O'Connor, Total Magazine, and Dave Perry from Mega Power here to review. Oh, yes, we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast before, but Gunstar Heroes is here. What a brilliant game this is. This is a sexy, sexy shooting game. This is your kind of game. This is not a strategy oh, yeah. game. This is a hands down run and gun game. And it is a game that almost never happened. Mm-hmm. The development of this game started at Konami. There was a team of developers. They were working on this game. And Konami basically went, we don't like this. We don't like any of your original ideas. Have you considered developing pachinko machines? But this was before they went that route fully. But they basically just shit on this idea and a number of others. So... They quit. They quit Konami and they set up their own development studio called Treasure. And originally they wanted to develop for the Mega Drive because they loved that processor. That processor, the Motorola 68000, it's a great chip for fast moving shoot 'em up action. It's one thing the Mega Drive does a lot better than the SNES. The SNES, for some reason, struggles with those multiple enemy big shooting games. Even mm-hmm. as a SNES owner, it's not something I'll ever disagree with. Both consoles had their strengths, and this kind of game was definitely the strong point of the Mega Drive. Yeah. They went to work for Sega, and Sega originally said no, but they changed their mind after Treasure had developed McDonald's Treasureland Adventure because they were happy with the progress being made, and so Sega went, you're doing well here, bring back that pet project. And at that point, development started in parallel across both, 
and their first official game as a development studio was Gunstar Heroes and released worldwide in 1993. And now we have it here being reviewed. It was a game that I didn't have at the time. It was a game I encountered in my university years. I was actually, someone I worked with at Game Station was like, oh, have you ever played Gunstar Heroes? And I said, no, I've not even heard of it. He's like, yeah, you've got to, and he lent me his copy of it. And I was blown away by this game. I was like, this game's brilliant. It's so much fun. It is frantic. It is fast paced. It is action oriented out the wazoo. Even if you don't really know how you're supposed to be a boss, you can work it out because it's just shoot the thing as much as you possibly can. Don't get hit while you do it. Oh man, there's so much variety in the game. It's what like, you know, Jazz Rignall says, you know, the game is incredibly varied. And I really enjoyed uh, Steve Merritt's comments, which is that his favorite game was Midnight Resistance, but it's now been overtaken by Gunstar Heroes. It's your new favorite game. And the guys reviewing it here were not alone. This thing was critically praised. It was game of the month, game of the year, all sorts of plaudits and awards. And it's still around today. There was a version for the 3DS and a sequel for the Game Boy Advance. Mm-hmm. Good sequel as well. Well, it gets a super cool 90%. Love seeing Gunstar Heroes uh, on this show. Really, really fun game. If you've not played it, absolutely check it out. Find an emulator version of it but because it, you, you will have a great time. For me, for the run-and-gun type games, I hold it up there with the Metal Slug series. You've seen the movie, now it's up to you to clear Jurassic Island of deviant dinosaurs, set over six levels, secure the park, and use the different guns to take out the various species, then get the hell out of there. Following the plot of the film fairly closely, Jurassic Park is that most rare of things, a film license promotion, which is actually playable. It's got a bit of alien syndrome blasting and a bit of Wolfenstein 3D shooting. It all hangs together beautifully, it's brilliantly professional and it uses graphics techniques you've never seen on the SNES before. You enter the different buildings, you collect more eggs, eventually you get a pass, and then you go to the 3D sections. Now the 3D sections, everybody's talking about them. I wasn't all that impressed. Up next, we talked about it ever so slightly uh, a moment ago, talking about how much uh, sort of nostalgia we have for this, but it's Jurassic Park on the SNES. I certainly haven't played a lot of uh, the SNES version put a lot of hours into the Mega Drive version because that was the, the version that I had and the Game Boy version, which is very similar to the SNES one without the, the cool 3D bits. I do know that SNES Park is held up quite in high regard. Like I think people really like this version. I think there's actually a lot of people who think it is better than the Mega Drive one because the Mega Drive one, for as much as I like it, is clunky and it's a bit janky at times. Also, much like the Alien 3 game, and let's be honest, the Mega Drive Jurassic Park has a lot in common with the Alien 3 game. It takes mm -hmm. a film license and goes, right, let's multiply the amount of enemies and make it a platformer. Because it's a, it is a yeah. run and platform and jump and shoot type game. Man, it's a shame we're not reviewing that one. Jazz Rignall would have hated it. Yeah, he really would have done. <laughs> but particularly because it's a platform game where the jumping is really hard. But over on the other side of the console war, Ocean, having spent a small fortune to secure the rights for Jurassic Park, they started to put the game together. And at that point, it became Ocean's biggest project up until that point. There were more developers working on it than a lot of their other games combined. And it was originally planned for release in August 1993. However, the project almost got nedred when they displayed a demo at CES in June 93 and the audience, they did not like it. Really? The developers who made the demo essentially did so 
on the cheap because they were worried if they spent more time developing the demo, it would impact their ability to do the work that they needed to do on the actual game. So if they'd spent all the time making the demo look as shiny as possible, the end game would have been worse, which they clearly didn't communicate back to the other developers at Ocean HQ. I can see the logic there because Ocean were very good at releasing substandard movie tie-ins, and this game is not a substandard movie tie-in. So while it did result in the game being delayed, I think it paid off because there's two sections to the game as you mentioned there's the top down bit and then there's the 3d bit this 3d bit is essentially doing what the super fx chip does in software Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating thing to achieve because the whole reason the super fx chip existed was to allow the snares to do 3d and so then you've got ocean who are essentially shovelware magnets at this point going look what we did yeah. And they did it all with Mode 7, that supporter of F-Zeros and Mario Karts and, and Pilot Wings. The one key advantage and why this is a better film adaptation than the Mega Drive version is the top-down mixed with the 3D allowed them to actually follow the plot of the film fairly closely. So all the key sections of the movie are in the game. Yeah, whereas opposed to the Mega Drive one is you start... At, after you've crashed with the, 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 the T-Rex attack, and then it's you getting back to the compound. But in addition to the graphics, one other technically impressive thing about this game, it was mastered in Dolby Surround Sound. And that was one of the big things about the film, is the film was really pushed for its use of surround sound because a lot of cinemas were only just getting that at this point in a multiplex environment. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I, I watched Jurassic Park at the weekend, funny enough. Me and my wife sat down to watch it. We were like, it's Sunday. Uh, we want a proper Sunday afternoon movie. And I was like, Jurassic Park, let's watch Jurassic Park. My wife said, yeah, it's not, like, she's, she likes it, but she doesn't, I, I bloody love it. I think it's one of the best films ever made. She absolutely had a blast watching it this time though. And I then called my folks after, you know, just to, to have a little weekly catch up with them. And I mentioned that we watched Jurassic Park and my dad mentioned, and I talked about this when we did, you know, what did we do during the summer? And we had to go to, to Bracknell because we couldn't get tickets to go see it in Reading. But the other reason we went there is because Bracknell had the surround sound. They had like the, the big thing where they had like the, the rattling speakers to make it feel like you were there. So when that T-Rex goes boom, boom, you feel the boom, boom through the speakers and, you know, it almost shakes your seat type stuff. Yeah, my, I, and that's why we went there. Even now, if I'm watching Jurassic Park at home, I'm not doing it right unless the T-Rex's roar makes my tailbone vibrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a, a brilliant little film. It made me want to go and play this SNES version in particular. It made me want to go play the Mega Drive version. It just really wanted to make me get back into that 1993 there was nothing more important in the world than Jurassic Park. It kind of got a mixed reaction from most critics in the magazine world, and that's kind of echoed here with the Games Master journalists, because Jeremy says that it follows the plot of the film fairly closely, and it's a rare thing amongst film licenses, one that is actually playable. Which is a comment that when he first said, I was like, no, Jeremy, what are you talking about? There's loads. I, I know that you know the, the running gag has always been that licensed games and tying games are always a bit... But I was like, no, Jeremy, there's been loads at this point. And then I thought about it and I was like, the bad ones do outweigh the good ones. Like, Because I can think of, you know, five really good ones off the top of my head. But then you can list 25 plus bad ones just as quickly. This does also go back to the whole concept of the development cycle, because some of the movie tie-ins that we've seen during our time on Under Consultation were pretty much developed without any access to scripts, footage, promo shots, 
actors, directors, art departments or anything. Ocean had scripts, they had stills, they had storyboards, they had access to everything you would need to understand what Spielberg was doing. Yeah. Frank O'Connor says it's got a bit of alien syndrome, a bit of Wolfenstein 3D. It all hangs together brilliantly and it uses graphic techniques that you've never seen on the SNES before. Which at that point, yeah, we hadn't really had a first-person 3D shooter on the SNES at that point. Doom hadn't come out for the SNES. Well, I mean, Doom's not out at all, but like, I don't think Wolfenstein hadn't been ported to the SNES at this point either. Well, thankfully, Luke, I can double-check that because I now have the SNES Encyclopedia, every game released for the Super Nintendo by Chris Scullion, who we follow on Twitter. Lovely chap. He's a very nice guy. And he has Wolfenstein 3D listed in here, as you would expect, with all games listed. And it does say the year of release was 1994. There you go. Yeah, so Wolfenstein was now at this point. But speaking of Jurassic Park, it is, of course, in there as well. And it does say as a fact, an Ocean PR told Superplay magazine in 1993 that the game originally included the sound of bones crunching whenever a T-Rex ate Grant. But Nintendo said it was a bit too graphic, so the sound was removed. Oh, that's fun cursed family-friendly Nintendo. Yeah, and, and although, you know, we've been quite positive about it, and I would argue that Frank and Jeremy have been positive about it, old Dave Perry, he's not impressed with the 3D sections. No, he's got the spirit of Jazz Rignall about him this week, because he says, you enter the buildings, collect the eggs, there's the 3D sections. He wasn't that impressed by them. And he doesn't. He really looks to turn up his nose which is surprising for a games journalist. Not a journalist, I'm a marketing manager. 81% though. 81% despite the naysayers. That's a respectable score. Grubs up, or it will be if you can catch the food in Out to Lunch. Control Pierre Le Chef over six countries and 48 levels, grabbing all the ingredients for some top notch. Avoid the Wicked Chef Noir though, or you'll end up as the main course. Out to Lunch is a cutesy platformer that probably would have been a wow on the uh, NES, but I feel that the Super Nintendo can do a lot better than this kind of game. Piella Chef travels from country to country, Brazil, Italy, Jamaica, collecting foodstuffs of the worlds. To do this, he uses his net and stuff like Tabasco sauce, which gives him fiery breath. It's excellent stuff, and the graphical variety is brilliant. It's a, a 90s version of Burger Time. Collect the food, put it in the right place, and skip the level. It's as simple as that, but it's mind-numbingly addictive. It's a lot better than Out to Lunch, which... When it came up on screen, I was like, oh, cool, a NES game. No, this is a Super Nintendo game. And that's basically what they say in the review as well. It's like, this would have been right at home on the NES, but this is the Super Nintendo. This game came out both for the SNES and the Game Boy. And on the Game Boy, this feels much more at home because, yeah, it's yep. got that older style of graphics. Also, later on, it did get ported to the Amiga and the Amiga CD32 because that's what this game needs, 32-bit power. <laughs> Amazingly, no abandoned port for the Atari Jaguar, so we'll never know what could have become there. <laughs> Where did you learn to fry? Well done. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Golf clap. <laughs> and unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be anything else interesting to say about the game. Didn't really find anything else in my research, and I think that's reflected in how the game is received by our journalists on screen. They're broadly positive about it. You know, like Steve calls it excellent stuff. Frank says it's the 90s version of Burger Time. It's mind-numbingly addictive, but it does only get a score of 78%. And I think uh, most of that comes down to Dave Perry's comments, which is that this does not feel like it's a Super Nintendo game. With cooking and with dish presentation, you first feast with your eyes. And so you may have the most delectable platforming game to play because they do say it's addictive and the gameplay is solid. But to look at this game, 
you would wonder why you'd spent 40 quid on this for a Super Nintendo when we've just seen Jurassic Park with its 3D Mm -hmm. sections. As much as I don't like to put weight behind graphics being a deciding factor in me enjoying a game, a game at this time looking as kind of meh as this, I wouldn't likely pick it up. Now, 40-year-old me probably would because I've matured, Luke. (laughs) But back then it doesn't stand a chance because Jurassic Park... For years, computers and video recorders have sat in separate corners of your living room. But now, Sigma Designs have come up with the real magic card, a board which transforms your multimedia PC into a video player. With this real magic card, you'll not only be able to watch films that are shortly to come out on CD, you can also play with the picture. You can fast forward, rewind, stretch the picture, or shrink it if you really want to. But I'm small enough already. And all this at the simple touch of a button. The other thing that it does is it plays a whole new games format, and that has the same quality, near as, near as makes no difference as television, so that you've got a new level of realism in games. The Real Magic card comes with a freebie, the latest in the classic Zork adventure game series, Return to Zork. It's been produced in the same way that a movie is produced, with actors, script, with uh, costume design, makeup, everything that goes with a movie. We worked with actors against a chroma key blue screen so that we could put them into a world that we could only imagine and that doesn't really exist. We have 180 locations, we have four mazes, there are 180 music cues, and there are about 50 some odd puzzles. And our expectation is for the good game player should take between 60 and 80 hours to solve the entire Return to Zork game. Full motion video looks great, but for the upwardly mobile games player, is a good-looking video game the most important factor? The Real Magic card gives the games publishers a chance to produce games that look as good as a movie you see on television, but that doesn't necessarily make for a good game. You've got to be able to play it. You've got to be able to control it. If you're just sitting there watching and occasionally moving things, it's not going to be any fun. For £399, the choice is yours. But if you ask me, this classic may not look as hot, but to play, it's worth a million dollars. And the feeling of that is sort of reflected in the feature that we've got this week, which is about turning your PC into a video player, and it's all about having these games that are going to look like you're literally playing the television. But it's Dexter's line at the end of this that I think really, really sums a lot of this up, because I feel like we've had a lot of these CD features And they've all said the exact same thing, which is that, yeah, it looks good, but are the games any good? And the majority of feedback is, nah, the games are a bit pants, really. And it's Dex ending this off being like, do you know what? Yeah, Mario All-Stars doesn't look as good as real-life actors acting against a green screen and coming in and being interactive with you. But the game's way better. It may not look as good, but it's worth a million dollars. He's not wrong on that front. I mean, purely from a technological point of view, this card developed by Sigma Designs, it was one of the first MPEG-compatible cards. It also took advantage of something you kind of stopped seeing in the 2000s, which is where you could have a stack of graphics cards. One would do 2D, one would do 3D, one maybe an MPEG decoder card or maybe a TV tuner, and you'd daisy-chain them together. Each one would have an input and an output, And so then it would be like making a layer cake because it's all about food and baking this week, Luke, but you would have a layer cake (laughs) of graphics cards. And that's what this did. You took the output from your normal graphics card and you put it into this one. And then the output from that went into your monitor. 
And if you didn't have it plugged in that way, you could still in theory play the video, but it would just be a blue or black screen. It just wouldn't show up. And unfortunately, whilst they do show a cracking game here in the form of Return to Zork, even that is oversold because they say, oh, it will take 60 to 80 hours for people to complete this game. No, it took about 50. And then it's 400 quid on top of that. I haven't done the inflation, but it's more than five and probably more than a PS5 would cost today. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly so. But in addition to Return to Zork, you also had the latest police quest that was optimised for it, the latest King's Quest, and one that I really like, Under a Killing Moon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I like those series of games, but later on you'd be able to get those on DVD and no special card was really required for the most part. Or it would be a card that would also let you play DVD movies. In my case, DVD movies from around the world. I was an early adopter for the multi-region boon because it meant I could own a Clockwork Orange and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Exorcist and all those other movies we weren't allowed to own. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had my DVD player through the, the PS2. That was like my first DVD player. And then I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to get a multi-region one because there's a lot of these DVDs that I want to get. Particularly, it was in... It, I, I had it before this, but what I really wanted was like Clerks X. It was the 10th anniversary release of um, of Clerks. It had the extended version of the movie and that awesome third disc. And the Clerks animated series I also wanted to get on, on DVD as well. This really shows our age difference because I was similar. One of the first DVDs I bought was Clerks, but not Clerks X, just the Clerks DVD <laughs> just release. Clerks, yeah, yeah. yeah I was, oh yeah, I had that as well. Yeah, that was one of the first things I got. Just to do the inflation calculation for you as well there, uh, £399 uh, in 2019, uh, which, you know, leading into 2020, £818. Oh, that's a, that's a PS5 and an Xbox, probably an S, but that's both. And both of them can play Netflix. This feature was interesting because, again, we are seeing where things are going and we're going to be having much more positive features about FMV featuring games down the line because even if they're not the core game mechanic, they certainly became integral as time went on. The Zork thing was was interesting, though, because I am a... Uh, it's not a particularly cool uh, position to have anymore, but I'm a, I'm a fan of Ready Player One. I think it's a, it's a fun little book. I think it's a fun little story, and, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. it. It's not a cool position to have anymore. I do think that the lead character is incredibly problematic. I think he's a bit of a knob, uh, and some of the stuff that's in the book isn't great, and it's not, it's not the best written book I've ever read, but I do think it is a fun little adventure. And Zork features, not heavily, but it is, you know, prominently featured in the book as it, it, it to get towards the second key is you do have to go to the planet of Frobos where they have created a 3D world that is, the you know, a, a recreation of the text adventure of Zork. So when, uh, you know, the, this came up here talking about Zork, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that game that's in Ready Player One, which is actually a, a, it's a fun little part of the book, really. But that's enough of that. It's time for our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Well, my next challenge is a very special event. The game is Lucky and Wild, a cops and robbers chase direct from the arcades. Okay, let's go. Our two contestants must work as a team to drive and shoot their way to downtown Los Angeles on the trail of a vicious drug dealer. Hordes of evil henchmen must be disposed of on your way. But watch out for innocent bystanders by the side of the road. Complete the level and bust the drug dealer and victory is yours. 
fail and you'll pay the price. Oh, hello, mate. Lucky and wild. Now, I, te I teased this up a little bit for you last week because you said that this is the sort of game that you would like to play. And I do know where you can play it. It's literally round the corner from where you and I usually record. It's at the Four Quarters in Hackney Wick. I had no idea that they had that there because I've been to one of the Four Quarters, but not that Four Quarters. And ah, oh, as soon as I saw this game on the challenge, I was like, oh, hello. Yeah, right. I love arcade shooter games, light gun games, whether they're fixed mount games like Terminator or Alien the Gun, or whether they're your Time Crisis, House of the Dead. I love sit-down racers as well. So the fact that this goes jelly and peanut butter and puts them together and I I just I got the Vic Reeves thigh rubbing going on. This this is a game that appeals to I am the core demographic for this game. Yeah, it was a the Christmas party we had last year uh, for work that we, we had at the four quarters. And you just sort of see it in the corner there and you're like, oh, it's a driving game. Hang on. It's a driving game with guns. Hang on. It's also two player. Right. Let's get a sack of quarters here together. Let's just plug through this because this is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. And it is fun, dude. Like, it's so cool. If you could be the driver and shooting at the same time, that's great. Just being the one person shooting is also great. It's really, really fun. But also, f***ing hell, it's hard. Spoilers. I'm not surprised they don't get through this because it's nails. And I'm wondering, did they even turn the difficulty down? Because they all have those service menus where you can move the difficulty up or down depending on how many quarters you want to milk out of people. And I'll be honest, for the four quarters, I'm surprised they didn't tone it down a little bit or maybe they wanted you to, to really tone it up a bit. Yeah, plug in your four quarters, mate. But the game was called Lucky and Wild. The plot and setting resembled Tango and Cash and also paid homage to Starsky and Hutch. It's Buddy Cop the Shooter. It is Buddy Cop the Shooter, and was the creation of the guy that would go on to develop Point Blank and Time Crisis. Oh, you can feel that in the game, actually. Yeah, that makes sense. And the reason why they chose to go this somewhat unusual route at the time was the company's planning department were doing a study of Japanese arcades, and they noticed that a lot of people tended to go to arcades in pairs. And so they wanted to create something that wasn't just one player versus two player or wasn't just two people both doing exactly the same thing they wanted to create something which people could enjoy together and maybe if they weren't a shooter and they were a driver so you could pick your favorite aspect now in this challenge the challengers one of them is double fisting the guns like they've got both yeah. guns and the other one is driving but the intention is that one of them is meant to be driving and shooting and yep. the other is just meant to be shooting I consider that the wrong way to play this. The right way to play this is to have one person focused on driving and the other double fisting the guns. Because if you're going to go lethal weapon, go lethal weapon. Yeah, I've got to be honest, because I was the, the driver and the shooter. And it's tricky, dude. Like it is. It's tricky to rock a rhyme and to rock a gun while you're driving. It's, uh, it, it, it's not the easiest system I've ever played in the arcades. And while the game was called Lucky and Wild in America and here in Europe, in Japan, where copyright is a strange and fantastic thing as the Fire Pro Wrestling series has shown, the influence held over it by the TV series Chips was well on display as it was called Joe and Ponch. Oh, that's cute. The game ran on an Amco System 2 board and while 3D was becoming popular, they stuck with 2D sprites to create their world. 
And even then, this thing was pushing the hardware to its limit. They were having to look at other games to basically try and create workarounds to create a game that ran smoothly and glitch-free. And even in this playthrough we're about to see, there are some pop-ups and some graphical glitches. They are really running that hardware into the ground because it's kind of at the end of its life. So the game is lucky and wild. Please give a big warm welcome for our special celebrity guests, Steve Punt and Hugh Dennis. Milky Milky! Thank you. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. That's all right. Good stuff. Uh, so, uh, computer games. Do you play them a lot? Uh, in the pub. And uh, no. in my case at home, he doesn't. He doesn't. You don't. So how well are you going to do on this challenge? Anybody? Very, very, very badly. He's going to do very badly. I'm going to do really well. Well, you'll be playing together, so you better help each other out. Yeah. That's right. handy. Oh, who's driving? Who's shooting? I'm driving. Oh, I'm, I'm going to shoot, shoot. <laughs> men. Right. Shoot men. Lots of men as they come yeah. towards you. Right. Good stuff. Now, I'm going to look to you uh, for this one, because I recognise both of these lads. Of course, you, you know, who wouldn't? But I am not that familiar with them as a duo of of Punt and Dennis. Like for me, like Dennis in particular, Hugh Dennis is someone. It, it's outnumbered. It's Taskmaster. It's not going out. It's his you know various things that he's done art through that panel shows and stuff. But as a comedy duo, and I'm not overly familiar. I mean, they are a comedy duo, but they're also part of a quartet because originally they as a duo were with another duo called Newman and Badil. And they formed together the Mary Whitehouse experience. Mary Whitehouse is someone we've brought up before, uh, both on our main feed and we referenced her in our Nightmare episode, which went out a little while ago. And she is a nightmare herself. Uh, she is. She was. If she's haunting you, we're sorry. But she was a bastion of standards and morals and a thorn in the side to TV producers, games makers, musicians, and God knows who else. Anyone who wanted to have fun, basically. So when they created this troupe called the Mary Whitehouse Experience, they were basically going, let's make stuff that is pushing the limits of what we can do. To the point where the BBC briefly were scared of allowing them to use the name the Mary Whitehouse Experience for the radio <laughs> and TV show that they produced. And they did briefly consider going with the William Rees Mogg experience. Really now? Yes. And yes, he is the dad of that Rees Mogg. And if you look up a yeah. photo of him, it's terrifying, the likeness. So after success as the Mary Whitehouse experience, they kind of split off and got their own separate deals with the BBC. Now, first up, you had Rob Newman and David Baddiel. They became big celebrities. Newman and Baddiel in pieces became a massive cult television show. They played to sold-out crowds at Wembley Arena. Now, Wembley Arena, not as big a stadium, but that's still a good 10,000-plus seater. That's, a, that's an impressive, you know, that's an impressive achievement. Unfortunately, Punt and Dennis didn't get quite the same level of recognition. I suspect because they weren't quite as edgy. Because Newman and Badil pushed boundaries in their humour. There was some of their stuff that was considered very tasteless and close to the knuckle at the time. And it was a prime BBC Two 9pm, which was a great place to put stuff that you wanted to go after the watershed, but that you didn't want to upset the grannies so the teens mm. could find it. Punt and Dennis had the imaginatively titled Punt and Dennis show, which aired on BBC One, I think. And the fact it aired on BBC One shows you that it was a bit more toned down. Still had surrealist elements 
also continued to bring up characters that were developed in the Mary Whitehouse experience, including the one Dex refers to in this, Milky Milky. Oh, hello there. <laughs> Milky Milky. Are you interested in milk? I am. Old milk is my hobby. Milk has a very long and distinguished history. Cleopatra bathed in milk. I did that once. I didn't get out for five days. And then I couldn't get out. I was trapped in a hundredweight of cheddar. Lovely. And while they continued to work together, their individual careers did begin to take off. But even now, they still work together on Mock the Week, where Hugh Dennis is a regular panellist, and Punt, at least for a while, worked behind the scenes. Mm. So the partnership is maintained, which is nice. But I guess for me, I remember the Punt and Dennis show. I remember the Mary Whitehouse experience. And maybe I did lean more towards Punt and Dennis than Newman and Badil. Possibly fear of wrath from parents maybe at play there. <laughs> <laughs> and they reunited fairly recently, though, to do tours in the mid-2000s, right up until 2014, where they embarked on a new tour called Plowing On Regardless. That's a very, yeah, that, that seems quite on brand. But I tell you what else is on brand, Luke. Hugh Dennis is here, and he's doubled down. He's got the double denim. He's got the Canadian tuxedo. It's a good look on him. It's not a great look on most people. I think Hugh Dennis is one of the few people I would say that can sort of pull it off. I don't recall. I've actually just recently rewatched the series of Taskmaster that he's on. I don't recall him wearing it too much on that, but I don't think I'd have looked at him and be like, that's out of character for Hugh Dennis. It's amazing he didn't wear it because if there's one thing Taskmaster is good at, it's giving people the opportunity to wear really stupid outfits just because <laughs> they happen to be on Taskmaster. <laughs> yeah. During the interview with Dex, Punt says he plays games down the pub and at home, but Hugh Dennis does not. This doesn't surprise me. That really did not surprise me at all. Right, so if you want to see Punt and Dennis blasting it up Miami Vice style on Lucky and Wild, stay with us until after the break. You're not on the scrounge again. Look, I just want a body of energizers. You're having a laugh. You know it took me ages to get them back the last time. Oh, go on. I know they last longer than ordinary SP batteries, but I do want them back. I know. Can I finish, mate? No, you don't have to go on. I can afford to go on. I've got Energizer batteries. Energizer. Longer, 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 longer lasting batteries. Looking for the gift that'll knock them out this Christmas? Then fly out for Disney's enchanting adventure, Peter Pan. And for everyone, everywhere, what better than Disney's classic, The Jungle Book? Peter Pan and The Jungle Book on video. Perfect Christmas presents. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ah, Tony. Egg mayonnaise? It's off, madam. The bolognese? That's off too, madam. What about the gravy? The salad dressing? The red wine? All off. It's a different jacket. No, a different detergent. Personal micro-liquid should always be on the menu. Because it has a double cleaning action, it can tackle more than one kind of stain. It combines an action on fat and an action on these other stains, all in one wash. Now, what would you like? Uh, the Devastol, please. Ah. Personal micro-liquid, now in a big value, two-litre pack. Dennis, our special celebs, playing lucky and wild because that's what they are. In the commentary box with me, I've got Frank O'Connor of Total Magazine. Hi, Frank. How How's doing? it going, Frankie, baby? So, um, do you want to tell us a bit about this game, please? Well, it's a driving game. You have to drive through the city streets, through yeah. the shopping malls, while your co-pilot has got to shoot everyone and everything that he sees. And he's got to avoid shooting innocent pedestrians as well. But all they've got to do to complete this, really, is get through the first level. And coming back from the break, we've got Frank O'Connor from Total Magazine, who runs through the game. Uh, Dex basically just laying down the rules. You've just got to beat the first level. Again, feels very old school Games Master, this, and I'm here for it. And again here, we come back to what we were talking about when we were discussing the game, in that realistically you're meant to drive and shoot, or just shoot. And I guess the idea is, is that the shooter is taking the lion's share of the shooting, but no, Hugh Dennis needs all his concentration for the driving, and Punt is is the shoot man. And it certainly helps. I mean, the game helps a lot in this, but we have had a lot of celebrity challenges, particularly with comedians, where they are playing shooting games, usually those American laser games. But this is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most fun I've had uh, for a celebrity challenge doing a shooting game. And as I said, that is held by the, the game itself because you've got the combination of the driving and the shooting. And plus it's like, you know, it's frantic arcade action as opposed to actors in cheap as ass costumes doing bad acting. Possibly the worst bit of this challenge are the moments when they actually cut to Punt and Dennis because they are actually taking this very, very seriously. Hugh Dennis is hunched over that steering wheel, <laughs> like like trying to navigate a bypass. He's 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 in the zone, and Punt has got a glassy stare. He is focused on the shooting, but that is reflected in how well they actually do. Because you said this game is nails, and to me, for one kind of a gamer and one non-gamer, 
it doesn't feel like they do that bad. It feels like they get quite a good way towards the end. Yeah, I think what I was saying was like I was unsurprised that they didn't make it to the end because it is quite a tricky little uh, game to sort of navigate your way through, particularly if you've only got one credit to your name. They just basically just take incremental amounts of damage. Um, you know, they get into the mall, they get out, they get back into the mall. They make a lot of small mistakes along the way, which is taking damage from people. It's running over people. It's shooting bystanders until they get set on fire and then they die. Game over. Okay, thank you. Steve, I noticed you're shooting some innocent bystanders there. Yes, I did. Yeah. I made down a couple of them. Was that intentional? Yeah, we liked uh, it. Entirely intentional. Yeah, we liked to do it, yeah. They were shoppers, I think. They were innocent shoppers. The uh, innocent shoppers. They deserved every second Absolutely. of it. I, I didn't really notice whether I ran any of them down, did I? Do I think I you did. I, I think you clipped a couple as you went through. I shot them first, so yeah. they, didn't, they didn't feel anything. That was good of you. Shoot them before, yeah, they get run over. Good idea. But in the post-match, Dex observes that they mowed down a fair few innocent bystanders and asked if that was intentional and apparently it was. Hugh says he definitely ran a couple down but Punt says he shot them first so they didn't feel anything. <laughs> Dex says that was very good of them. But unfortunately it is our first celebrity challenge here outside of the tournament that we had with the Gladiators where we're not going to have a winner and so we're afraid we're going to have to go across to Games Master for the final judgment. I'm sorry, I can't tolerate anyone relishing the killing of innocent civilians. It's off to the furnaces for six months' hard labour. Hey, I mean, you laughed at the idea of these two killing people um, and, you know, not feeling anything before Dennis ran them over. But Games Master will not have it. He will not have this relishing of the killing of innocent civilians. But we do find out something about the furnace here we find out that you do have an expiry date on you leaving. You don't just go into the furnace and just burn to pieces. You go there to work for six months. In this case, six months. I think, you know, Games Master, who's being fairly bloodthirsty himself in this one, probably realises he can't kill off a couple of celebrities. So they get six months. Some of the other people that have been sent down there, I mean, have you ever seen them again, Luke? I've, I've certainly not seen them again and links arms with them, which briefly feels like we're going to go into a Morecambe and Wise chorus line sketch. <laughs> I've never seen the caretaker link arms with anyone else that he's either met, greeted, or taken to the furnaces. But it was quite lovely, though. It was a touching moment, and slightly unnerving. Hello, and welcome to my tower. What's your small personal difficulty? I'd like to play Asteroids on my Mega Drive Games Master. Well, first, let me ask you a question. Do you have the game Megalomania? Um, yeah. Now this is rather amusing. Go to the password screen and enter the letters J-O-O-L-S. This will take you to a secret bonus game of asteroids, saving your valuable pocket money for whatever disgusting things you spend it on otherwise. Oh, thanks very much. No trouble. Our first kid in the consultation zone. And I mean, we know that this is the case because we interviewed Misha, who told us as much. But this is a proper just like, here, kid, can you read this and ask what this question is? Because there isn't a kid in this world in 1993 who's going on Games Master says like, Games Master, I want to play Asteroids for my Mega Drive. Yeah, it's also, I think, one of the first times we've ever had a question to the Games Master answered with a question. I want to play Asteroids. Okay, do you have megalomania? I'd have loved it if the kid had said no, because then the game's no. master would have been, well, tough titty, off you go. Yeah, it's because, yeah, if you do, come back. But apparently, if you go to the password screen and enter the password J 
O O L S or Jules, you'll go to a special bonus level of asteroids, saving your pennies for whatever disgusting things you'd spend it on otherwise. God, he's been a grumpy sod this week. Isn't he just? I actually didn't know you could play Asteroids on Megalomania, and I've had it for 20 plus years. Have you tried it yet? I've not actually, no, I haven't had the time to boot it up, but I will. Next time I put Megalomania in, I will give it a little try. Which means you will be someone that wants to play Asteroids on their (laughs) Mega Drive. James Master, I keep dying on level 5 of Super Star Wars on the SNES. Can you help? Run through the level and get to the second set of rock platforms. Just have faith in me and walk straight off the cliff. Then hold down left on the joy pad. This will land Luke outside a secret cave. Fire upwards and oodles of extra lives will appear. Thanks a lot. Our second key keeps dying on level five of Super Star Wars. Uh, So you get off the rocks, fall to the far left, reveal a hidden cave, and there's loads of extra lives there. However... Do you think I'm a fool, Games Master? You keep saying that you're playing as Luke, but quite clearly, that's Han Solo on the screen that you're showing. Boy, I really hope somebody got fired for that blunder. Although, his actions here do explain why, in the cantina, he definitely shot first. He was looking for those extra lives. Who's my final poor little lamb? Games Master, I keep getting stuck on the first world of Mario All-Stars Lost Levels. Can you help me, please? Please? Go along World 1, Level 2, to the green pipe with the beetle next to it. Jump up and the secret platform will appear. Jump on this, then jump into the wall above. A beanstalk will appear. Climb up this to find yourself a bonus stage full of coins. Collect all these and make your way to the end for a warp to World 3. There you go. Thanks a lot. And finally, our final lass is stuck on the first world of Super Mario All-Stars, which we sort of had last week a little bit. This is the second half of it because you can go up and over to get the warp to level two, or you can climb the secret vine and that'll go up and then you can go up and over and get the warp to world three. When this started, I did have a brief moment of, did I lean on the remote and skip like to a previous episode? I had the exact same thing, man. I was like, we literally had this last week, you lazy bastards. But I love that they did it this way because it means that some people would be playing this in the week between episodes going, I've got this warp. And then this week, Games Master goes, ah, but you could have also skipped even further ahead and people would be like, shit, because that's a whole (laughs) extra world I didn't have to play. And the quicker you can get through Mario All-Stars, because the lost levels, I do mean, the, the, the easier your life will be because... There's a reason why we didn't get it over here, because it's bloody hard. The clip that they show when she gets into World 3, you're like, yeah, this is why very few people really like the Lost Levels. Yeah, she goes through the warp pipe and just dies immediately. But that is enough consultation zone. It's time for our final challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? A bit of an exclusive for our final challenge tonight. The game is Jungle Book on the Mega Drive. Our contestant must run, jump, and swing his way through the rainforest, collecting as many points as possible on his journey. 4,000 points in one minute or less is the goal. 
Any less, and failure is guaranteed. We're going to be playing through the Jungle Book. Well, I mean, say through the Jungle Book, just playing through the first level of the Jungle Book, trying to get to a certain amount of points. But yeah, this is more great Virgin Interactive stuff, great Virgin Interactive graphics. It's not quite the Aladdin level of things, but this is sort of like the earliest we're leading into the Aladdin Mega Drive game. But this was the work of David, not Dave Perry. And this was the game that he was developing when him and his team left to go and form Shining Entertainment. He started development on this, but didn't finish it. Eurocom were brought in to finish the work that he'd begun. So maybe that's hmm. why the Jungle Book isn't quite as shiny and nice, because the people that made those sorts of games so good had buggered off to essentially form Shiny Entertainment. Yeah. The game overall didn't get as many great reviews as other titles like you mentioned, Aladdin or The Lion King that tied into Disney properties. The Mega Drive version was considered to be the best because the sprites just moved better, the animation was smoother, the SNES version was a little bit more clunky. But I think this this trip to the well didn't work when it came to Disney licenses. And I would probably wager that this is a challenge that was paid for by Virgin. This feels like one of those sponsorship things we talked about with the CDI, uh, we talked about with a couple of other games as well, where it, like because they are putting this game over hard, you know, sort of about like, oh, the gorgeous Disney animation on screen. Uh, it's one of the best looking Disney games that you're ever going to play, that sort of thing. And seeing this game and thinking about other Disney tie-ins we've had, and I'm not just talking about The Lion King and Aladdin, I'm talking about Fantasia, I'm talking about Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Mm -hmm. How come we never got a game of Disney's Robin Hood? Yeah, because it would have got a VHS release. Uh, like, you know, we've been brought out of the vault, if certainly not around this time, not too long beforehand. It was definitely around on video at this point because I'd seen it on video, but also I'm thinking about the gameplay side of things. You want your runny, jumpy, shooty platformer. Robin Hood as a property is already there because Sherwood Forest, bow and arrow, multiple characters, some great design in that film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Robin Hood, the Disney film. I love it. Robin Hood is one of my favorite Disney films. Like that and Sword in the Stone uh, are the two that I try. I go back to a lot, like, uh, you know, from the pre-Renaissance era. How did you find the first challenge? Come down. What does that mean? It is easy. It was easy. Okay, let's hope your next one's going to be easy as well. So, the game is Jungle Book. Do you know the game? Yes. And uh, are you confident? Come down there. What does that mean? No problem. No problem. Good stuff. So, memory was back. And this is where I don't think they really, like, pushed forward with the Bucky O'Hare ears joke of no trouble. Because... They, you know, he says like, oh, how's the first challenge? He says, easy. I'm like, surely it's no trouble. Surely it was no trouble, the first challenge. That's, that, that's the gag, isn't it? Yeah, this is where he starts to pull one over on Dex because Dex asks him if he knows the game and asks him if he's confident. And Mamoru says something in Japanese and Dex looks confused and goes, what does that mean? And he's like, oh, no problem. Yeah, I mean, he also says that he knows the game, which is quite clearly bollocks. This is an exclusive, mate. Well, no, he does know it. He played it in the green room earlier that day. He played it, say, he, played it today, yeah. He's being too truthful because, like, do you know the game? It's like, yeah, you had me practising it earlier while you were doing other stuff. <laughs> With me in the commentary box is Jerry Doak again. How you doing? Hi, Dexter. So, Jungle Book, is this an amazing game or what? Yeah, very tough game, very good-looking game. Yeah. Uphill struggle all the way, basically. He's got to shoot bananas, kill monkeys, collect fruit, collect diamonds. 
enviable task. I don't fancy it myself. Okay, so Mamaru's got to score 4,000 points in a minute or under. Jerry Doak is back in the booth to put the game over some more. He doesn't fancy this challenge himself because he thinks it will be tough. And yeah, this is, I mean, quite clearly, Mamaru has been playing this game all day long because he knows this game. Like, he knows everything that he needs to do to get the 4,000 points that uh, that he needs to win this challenge. But this all falls apart because he mistimes quite a few of his jumps and, you know, and where to get the points off. With 20 seconds left to go, he's like below 3,000. He's only at 2,600 and basically gets to 3,150. It's our first failure on Games Master Series 3. Yeah, and it's all down to the mistiming of a couple of jumps. He was on target. He'd used a couple of shortcuts to get an early boost in points, but the jumps didn't go with him. He missed a couple of piles of fruit. Post-match, Dex asks him how he feels, and he's just like, I feel terrible. Bad luck. How do you feel? I feel terrible. You do? I don't feel bad. It was a tough challenge. Oh, I feel so bad for him. I feel really bad for him at that point. I, I sat there going, I want to give this dude a hug. He genuinely looks like his world has just collapsed around him a bit. And Dex, Dex shows some sympathy. This is the first episode of Series 3 where not only did the main challenge not have a winner, but our celebrity challenge didn't have a winner either. There are no golden joysticks awarded on this episode. Given the limited supply of the damn things they had, it's probably for the best. <clears throat> they were giving out quite a lot of them early in this season. For that cracking cartoon action, I can only leave you with the words of the late great Walt Disney. Goofy's a dog, Mickey's a mouse, but you can't beat a good Donald Duck. See ya. Blimey, that's a bit close to the wire, isn't it? It may be close to the wire. It made me laugh. It made me laugh enough that I used it as my intro name for this bloody episode. I was going to say, I mean, it's the first of these misquoted things that actually got a laugh out of me. It really did take me by surprise. But the other thing I do want to make mention here before we do get away from this segment is that uh, he's wrong on several accounts. A, Walt Disney didn't say this. D, Goofy is not a dog. Leaving aside that both Mickey and Goofy are racist stereotypes, what is Goofy? He is not a man. He is not a dog. He's a mog. He's a man dog. Because Pluto is a dog, but Goofy is a mog. Why is Pluto a dog, but Goofy and Max are not? Why, why do they get to walk on their hind legs and wear clothes? Yeah, but the same could be said of us and monkeys. Oh, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you that one. I don't know, Dunstan wore clothes and he was pretty smart, man. And he checked in. But that is going to do it for episode seven of series three. Uh, Ash, what did you make of it? It's a shame there were no joysticks awarded because the first challenge, we'll agree to differ on that one. I thought it was fine and ruined by commentary. You're siding with a person I felt kind of ruined it by commentary. That's cool. The reviews, amazing set of reviews. Oh, God, some, some great games in there and a duffer, but two stellar games in there. And an interesting feature because, again, it's showing what's around the corner in gaming. Celebrity Challenge, great pair of celebrities, great game. They didn't complete it, but it was a tough game. And kind of nice to see an exclusive game at the end. It's nice that Games Master has the clout to get these games in a relatively early or unfinished form. If the Celebrity Challenge had been a winner, and if Mamoru had been a winner, I might be looking at this much more favourably. As it is, it just felt like the episode was a little mispaced. While they did have some comeback at the end for the whole, to be blunt, Kai and Tai gimmick... For those of mm -hmm. you that grew up with wrestling in the 90s, you'll know what I mean. 
Indeed. That just felt misplaced, even if they did kind of try and do a bit of redemption and Dex looking like the fool at the end. Yeah, it just didn't hang together well. So I'm going to go, I think, 73 for this one. Okay. 73%. And a lot of that is hanging on two reviews and the game in the Celebrity Challenge. Yeah, my score is in a very similar position to yours. It is very much hanging on the two great reviews that we got. A fun consultation zone. You know, I, I like all the three games that are in there and the, the fun feature and Lucky and Wild. I did not like that first challenge. I thought that, that first challenge was pretty boring. I'm going to side with Jerry on that one. And the Jungle Book is a perfectly fine game, but it is not... Like it is cool that it's an exclusive, but that is kind of sort of about it. It's not it wasn't a particularly exciting challenge to watch either. So I am going lower than you. I was actually thinking of going into the like, you know, hind sixties. Uh yeah, maybe that's what I'll do then. I'll bump it up from sixty-eight uh into the into seventies just for those two reviews and the decks line then. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. You all rule. Thank you so much. If you haven't already, please do consider giving us a subscribe wherever you are listening and give us a little review if you're on Apple Podcasts. It's a good way to help this podcast get noticed in those feeds. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do over on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us some feedback to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to give us a bit of real-time feedback, maybe chat with us kind of in person, I guess, as close as you can get at this point in time, you can join our Discord where there's a lovely group of people. Today we've had discussion about the Greg's PlayStation launch box, and I've just seen one of our listeners who got their PlayStation 5 today has put an under-consultation <laughs> sticker on their PS5 joypad. I do worry that that may affect the ability of that touchpad area to work. I hope it doesn't trash it. We are definitely not in a position to be held liable for sticker damage. (laughs) That's great, Dave. Thank you so much. It does look nice. The black and white sticker on the black and white pad, that's a classy look. I might consider doing that myself. Really, how often are you going to use that touchpad thing? Not as often as you'd think. More often than you'd expect. (laughs) Very nice. You can also support this show monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod. And if you back us at the five pound level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad free. But at that 10 pound level, you get a little bit extra. What is that, Ash? You get a mug, you get stickers, you get sweets, you get badges, you get retro trading cards. And at the moment, everyone that subscribes at that 10 pound level is getting some retro 1994 Power Rangers trading cards in their pack. And you also get £5 off of our first under-consultation shirt, which can be bought from underconsultation.com, along with more badges, more stickers, more mugs, and with those orders would also come more trading cards. And a shout-out to those £10 backers, Adam, Adam, Cliff, Gordon, Jamie, Matt, Misha, Nick, Phil, Richard, Robert, Sean, Simon, William and zach thank you all so much you all rule just as each and every person listening to this does do you know who else rules daryl who left a apple podcast review that calls this podcast proper nostalgia i was a huge fan of games master as a kid it was something i hadn't thought about in years till i stumbled across this brilliant podcast it reminds me of the good old days of gaming before dlc season passes loot boxes etc sigh a simpler time oh daryl mate i hear you buddy but that is going to wrap it up for this episode we will see you in seven days time take care everybody good night
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.